Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and minds, and that you'd make us attentive to your voice, and that in attending to your good voice, that you would change us. Father, we come into this room today from so many different places in our life. Uh, Some of us are excited and hopeful. Uh, Others of us are just tired or maybe discouraged. Some of us can't even believe we're sitting in church today. But we ask, God, that wherever you might find us, that you would speak to us and you would take us to the place you want us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Uh, Have you ever had the experience of maybe watching a Christian trying to evangelize a non-Christian and maybe because they were being coercive or manipulative or they just weren't reading the room or they were just being weird. But you found yourself thinking, as you watch this Christian trying to evangelize a non-Christian, you you found yourself thinking, there has got to be a better way to do this than that. Eugene Peterson, uh, one of the great writers on spirituality, He also translated uh, the Message Bible. He tells this wonderful story in the Christian century uh, about his first experience with evangelism. He said he was in the first or second grade uh, when a bully named Garrison Johns picked out Eugene to be his victim. He writes this. He said, I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison knew that about me, just some sixth sense that bullies have. But he said, every day he would catch me after school and beat me up. And he also found out that I was a Christian, and so he would taunt me with the name Jesus Sissy. I returned home from school most days bruised and humiliated. My mother told me this had always been the way with Christians in the world, and that I had better get used to it. (laughs) It's like, thanks, Mom, for that empathy. But one day, he said, something changed. He said, I was walking home with a group of friends when Garrison caught us up, and he began jabbing me. And that's when it happened. Something snapped. For a minute, the Bible verses moved out of my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than him. I wrestled him to the ground. I sat on him and pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. He was at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fist. It felt good. And so I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. This is the message Bible guy, Eugene Peterson. (laughs) Then he said, I said, say uncle. He wouldn't say it, so I hit him again. But then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. (laughs) He didn't say it. I hit him again. And I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. He said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. (laughs) Now, I I don't know about you, but I have mixed feelings, mixed emotions when it comes to the topic of evangelism. I mean, on the one hand, I am totally and completely for it. The the word evangelism, it simply means to announce or to share good news. And I believe that the creator of all things has astoundingly acted on behalf of his creation. God has broken 
the power of sin and death and darkness. God has, has, has brought new life to birth in this old world of death and darkness. There is good news of forgiveness and healing for all of humanity. And I want my friends and my neighbors and my coworkers and my kids to know and experience this good news. I, I am all for evangelism, but on the other hand, in my experience, it just feels a little bit clumsy, maybe awkward, when I try to talk to other people about this. And I'm a pastor, I'm a trained professional, and I just wonder if any of you feel this same way. And, and, and sometimes you can even meet someone that, that you think, you know, your tradition has told you they need to be converted. And then you talk to them, and they seem to be more loving and kind than a lot of people you know that are supposed to be converted. And then, of course, it's hard to shake the fact that in a culture that values tolerance above all else, that it can almost just feel immoral or wrong to try to voice what you believe on someone else. And then, I, I don't know about you, but does it seem like the people who are most vocal with their signs or bullhorns or bumper stickers or Instagram posts are often the most insensitive and obnoxious and sometimes just downright weird people? And whatever they call evangelism, it seems to do more harm than good. And, and so I, I don't know about you, but I, I can feel mixed emotions when I think about this topic of evangelism. Now, if you, felt, if you feel that way at all, if you've ever thought that, you know, you kind of feel mixed emotions when it comes to the topic of evangelism, you are not alone. Jesus of Nazareth actually had mixed feelings when it came to a people evangelizing. I mean, on the one hand, Jesus was emphatically for it. The very first thing Jesus did when he launched his public ministry was he came announcing the good news. That means he came evangelizing. Jesus was an evangelist. Jesus was for evangelism. The very last thing he did before he sent his disciples off, and we're going to see this today, is he commanded his followers to go and to tell everybody, to announce to everyone this good news. But on the other hand, Jesus was well aware that sometimes evangelism coming from religious people can do more harm than good. In fact, uh, in, in, in one of the Gospels, he put it like this. He said, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Ouch. And that's Jesus. So, so Jesus said, look, evangelism can actually do more harm than good. It can be damaging. It can be, it can be counterproductive. And yet, how, how does hypocrite evangelism that does more harm than good, how does it actually differ from the kind of thing that Jesus calls his followers into, and what would it look like for us to actually engage in the kind of evangelism, the sharing of the good news that Jesus himself practiced and engaged in? And it's that question that I want to begin exploring today and in the weeks ahead. And the way we're going to do it is I want to invite you to consider with me uh, the book of Acts. So uh, the book of Acts is the record of how the early church grew and flourished and spread throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and throughout the entire Roman Empire, 
transforming lives and homes and families and individuals with this transformative power of God's love, this great news. And one of the things that you read about throughout the book of Acts is that the church in Acts was all about evangelism. I mean, they were sharing the good news. And yet the way they did it wasn't turning people off. It was actually drawing people in. It was gaining traction. And yeah, there were, there were people who were detractors. There were people that got upset, uh, to be sure. Usually people in authority, usually religious people in authority. He was kind of like, the, the early church kind of shook their power structures. And so they got nervous about the, the news that was going out that was welcoming so many people into this kingdom. But the question we want to ask is, what was their secret? And what does it look like when a church faithfully engages in the work of being an evangelistic presence in this world? And this is a very practical question I want to ask, because it is my heart, it is my desire for myself and for our church that in the months and in the years ahead, that we would become more and more of a compelling evangelistic presence in this community and in the San Gabriel Valley. We want to be a community of good news speakers that are able to articulate and share the good news of Jesus with people around us. But how do we do that in a way that actually gains traction, that, that, that's compelling? And the book of Acts is going to help us understand that question. So we're going to begin today by looking at the very opening verses because in these opening verses, Jesus himself uh, gives a mandate. He calls us to go out and to be his witnesses. And so I, what I want to do is I want to just walk through this passage, and then I want to stand back, and I, and I want to just make three observations about Jesus' evangelistic vision that we find in this text. And so look how the, the book begins. So he says this. Uh, the author says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the first thing that we observe here is that the book of Acts is the second of two books. He refers back to his first books. And so it's appropriate that we're in uh, the book of Acts in the summer, because in the summer there's always some good sequels that come out. And the book of Acts is a sequel to a first work, which was the book of Luke. And Luke was uh, one of the biographies of Jesus that told the story of Jesus. So he says, look, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, but now I'm writing a second book, and the second book is going to cover what Jesus continues to do in the world through his church, his people. That's the book of Acts. Now he says, I'm writing this book to you, O Theophilus. Now, who is Theophilus anyway? Uh, we don't know much about Theophilus. Uh, the only thing we really know is that when he was born, he had to have been a really ugly baby because his mom and dad looked at him and just said, this is Theophilus' child I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was so bad. That was so cheesy. I'm not going to say it in the second service. No, I am going to say it in the second service. Actually, the word Theophilus means uh, beloved of God. It's a great name. And Theophilus, who, who was he anyway? Why is he writing a, why, was, why does the book of Acts address to this guy named Theophilus? Well, in the first century, uh, the world of publishing books didn't work 
the way ours does today. You didn't find a publisher. Uh, you didn't go on Amazon.com. Instead, if you wanted to write a book, which was a very expensive process in the ancient world, you needed a patron who would pay for the project. And so Theophilus is probably the patron who is funding this writing project, and then the patron would then be responsible for the dispersion and the reproduction of this book to make sure it got out among its people. So uh, Luke is writing this to Theophilus, and again, it's about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, speaking of his ascension, which we're going to read about in a minute, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, Think about this. Luke now is going to refer to that space of time between Jesus' resurrection from the dead when he walked out of the tomb and 40 days later when he ascended to the Father's right hand. And we're like, what did he do? What was going on during that time? He said, well, during that time, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So Jesus, throughout these 40 days, continued to school his disciples in a theology of the kingdom of God, but he also, interestingly, gave them many, it says, proofs. He appeared to them alive. Now, contrary to what some people think, first century people were not more likely to believe in a bodily resurrection than modern people. You know, it's probably the case that the ancient world, they were more inclined to believe in the miracles or in the supernatural. But bodily resurrection was not something that Jews believed was going to happen. They, didn't, they weren't looking for a Messiah to be raised from the dead. Uh, certainly the Gentile audience around, nobody was expecting the Messiah to be raised from the dead. The disciples were not expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead. I mean, there was not one of the disciples, not one of the men, not one of the women who stood out side of the, the, of the tomb on that first Easter morning and said, let's do a countdown, you know? 10, 9, 8, you know, rise from the dead, you know? No, they were shocked. And so what did they need in order to believe that Jesus had indeed raised from the dead? Well, think about it. What would you need to convince you that he had been raised from the dead? Maybe he would need to appear to you once, twice, three or four, maybe in groups so that you knew you weren't hallucinating. Maybe he'd need to eat with you so you could tell this is a real physical body. Maybe you might even need to put your hand in his side or in his fingers. You would need all kinds of proofs. And Jesus provided this for his disciples over the course of this 40 days, convincing them of something that they would not have otherwise been inclined to believe. And then it says this, and while they were staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He says, look, wait in Jerusalem because you will be immersed, baptized in the power and in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And then after speaking this word of promise, Listen to this. He calls a final meeting with his disciples. And uh, maybe, you know, maybe because Jesus hadn't mentioned it, maybe because they were just wondering. They, one of the things that they were just dying to ask when uh, Jesus finally gathered them together in their final meeting was this. They came together. They asked him, Lord, Lord, we've been waiting. Like, will you at this time 
restore the kingdom to Israel. It was the 16th century reformer John Calvin who once quipped that there are as many problems as there are words in this question. Lord, will it, will it, will at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, in a minute, we're going to see that Jesus kind of confronts the question, but why? What's the problem with what they're asking? The problem is not that they are asking about the kingdom of God. Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom of God. Now, when you hear kingdom of God, do not think the place you go when you die. You know, oftentimes we think kingdom of God, it means heaven, where we sit on clouds and play harps with angels, and we spend eternity, and isn't that going to be great? It's like, no, I just spent the entire last week surfing epic waves in northern Baja, like, and that seems better than sitting on a cloud with a harp. Listen, in, in the teaching of Jesus, the kingdom of God is not heaven. The kingdom of God is the healing, the transformative, the saving, the peaceable justice-bringing, community-forming, forgiveness-imparting reign of God breaking out on earth even as it is in heaven. That is the kingdom of, Jesus had talked to them. The problem is not that they're asking about the kingdom of God or even about the day when the kingdom finally brings restoration. The problem instead lies elsewhere. Well, what is the problem? Well, number one, I want to suggest three things. Number one, they're interested in the king, their interest in the kingdom is far too speculative. By the way, that's a typo. You're like, dang, that's a typo. It is. Their interest in the kingdom is far too speculative. They're interested in the time. When is it going to happen? Let's get our charts. Let's write some fiction novels. Let's look at the newspaper. Let's kind of bring it all together. Let's kind of map it out. Let's do the numerology and, and let's figure out when it's going to happen. But listen, Jesus says, he says, look, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Your interest should not be in speculation and trying to figure out, is now the time? Is it happening right now? Oh, and let's, you know, Jesus said, no, your interest lies elsewhere. So first, their, their, their first problem is that their interest is far too speculative. But second, a more serious problem their vision of the kingdom is far too narrow. Their vision of the kingdom is far too... It's a second typo. <laughs> There'll be some edits in between. You're like, honey, is he one of those personality types that does that? Yes, I am. Um, their vision of the kingdom, get this, is far too narrow. Do you hear the last word in their question? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to who? Israel. And in Jesus' answer, the last phrase is not Israel. It is to the ends of the earth. He goes from the narrow circle of their concern. Will the healing, restorative reign of God finally break out for Israel, for this nation? And Jesus turns their attention from their nation and their people to all nations and all people. He is widening their circle of concern. He says, it is all the way to the ends of the earth. 
But the third problem is not only that they're, 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 they're way too speculative and their concerns are way too narrow, but thirdly, their role in this whole project is far too limited. You notice what it says in the text. He says, Lord, will you, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Will you do, will you? And Jesus turns, and in essence, he says, will you? Actually, he doesn't say will you. He says, you will. This last uh, few months ago, I was talking with my father-in-law who owns a uh, 47-foot, big, old, wooden boat, you know, 1969, like old trawler. It's just this beautiful, gorgeous boat. And uh, sometimes we'll go down and we'll sleep on the boat, but I am terrified of ever driving the boat. And for a lot of reasons, there's, uh, you know, six, seven-figure boats all over the, the docks that I could run into. Don't want to be responsible for that. <laughs> And then I'm just really insecure about my abilities with something like a big boat. I, I, I've had accidents in the past. I, we'll have to talk about that later. <laughs> but uh, we're talking about going to Catalina this summer. He's like, I, I'm like, hey, are you going to be able to go to Catalina? Are, are you going to be able to take us to Catalina this summer? He's like, I'm going to teach you to take us to Catalina this summer. I'm like, no, you won't. <laughs> but you see what Jesus is doing. And even the opening phrase of the gospel, it puts, or the, the, the book of Acts says this, he describes Acts, or the first book, as all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That's the gospel of Luke. The book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do and teach, and through whom does Jesus continue to do and teach? It's through the church. It is through you and me. And yet they don't see their, themselves in this equation. Well, after this, Jesus, after he had said these things, as they were looking on him, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. This was the very last words Jesus will speak directly to his disciples on earth. And it says, and then he was taken up in a cloud. C.S. Lewis said, they saw a vertical movement and then a vague luminosity. You know, he was an English professor. But it sounds almost surreal, like a rocket man shooting up through the atmosphere. And you're like, well, if there was a space station, would they have seen him? You know? No, don't misunderstand. Up to this point, Jesus had been appearing to his disciples in various ways and places, his post-resurrection appearances. And so he's been coming and going, and he needs to be sure now that the disciples know that this is it. He is now ascending to the right hand of the Father. And he does so in a cloud. Clouds in the Old Testament imagination are representative of the very glory presence of God. So Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. It is his coronation where he ascends and he sits down to rule and reign as the world's true king. In other words, in this moment, an entire new page has opened for all of human and cosmic history. Christianity claims nothing less than that. Christianity is not simply about a new ethical idea, a new religion. It is about the action of the creator God in human history to overturn sin and death and darkness and to inaugurate a kingdom of life and resurrection in the midst of this old kingdoms of darkness. 
And so Christ ascends and he seats down at the Father's right hands. And then, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? To which I respond, well, what would you do? (laughs) This Jesus, he says, whom you saw taken to heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, Christ will return as he went. His ascension was personal and visible and glorious, and Christ's return will also be personal and visible and glorious. This Jesus who was taken up for you will return in the same way. But remember, he said to remain in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Father. And so then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot. You're like, what about Judas, the son of James? Yeah, Judas, the son of James was there. And, uh, and all of these were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So they all gather together. And what do they do? They wait and they pray. And what do they pray for? They're longing for the promise of the Father to come and empower them for this mission. And our text ends. What I want to do now is I just want to stand back and I want to make three brief observations about the evangelistic vision of Jesus that we find in this text. You know, there's so much in this passage. I felt overwhelmed this week. Sometimes as a preacher, you are studying a text and you feel like you're wrestling with a text. And then sometimes you feel like the text just overcame you and pinned you down. I felt like that this week, that's what I'm saying because there's a lot in this. But what I want to do is I just want to hone our attention to the evangelistic vision of Jesus that's given to us in this passage. And I want to suggest that Jesus' evangelistic vision, this is the very primal text for the church's mission to evangelize the world. And three things to observe about it. Number one, Jesus' evangelistic vision is global. It is global. It is not just Jerusalem, and it's not just Samaria and Judea. It is all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, Jerusalem is going to be a difficult place to evangelize because it's in Jerusalem that Jesus was crucified, but this is where they will begin. Although this is a very broad vision, it begins right at home. And listen, for our church, although we ought to always have a broad vision of worldwide evangelism, we always have to remember that the mission to share this good news begins at home. Begins here, it begins with us. But Jesus' vision is global. In other words, Jesus is seeking to expand their circle of concern. They were concerned understandably with with, with Israel. And it's understandable, so many of us, like we're, we're wrapped up in concerns about our nation and where is our country headed. And that's, that's totally understandable and it's legitimate to be, uh, to be concerned about our nation and our culture and what's happening. But listen, the vision of Jesus is always broader than our little place we live. 
And the church needs to recover this global vision that Jesus has to go out and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you notice, like within their own national boundaries, Jesus clarifies, like we're talking Judea and Samaria. You know, this is the, it's the red states as well as the blue states. It's Judea, the place where you might feel comfortable. It's Samaria, the place with people who don't vote like you or talk like you or dress like you. This good news is for everyone. And so he says, you need to expand your circle of concern and also expand our ability to understand and engage with people who are different from us. If you're going to go into Samaria with the gospel, you can't go into Samaria simply pronouncing judgment on everything you don't like about what's going on in Samaria or the ends of the earth. Instead, what Paul does, you know, when he goes into these places, you know, is in, in, in what the, the apostles do, what Philip does, is they notice where the Spirit of God may already be at work, where the Spirit who has been poured out on the church has gone out ahead of us and is working in people's lives in an emptiness that people feel, in a vacuous sense. And listen, people oftentimes when they are feeling empty and overly, you know, overcome with their addictions and their anxieties and their own broken homes and their own despair and hopelessness, they don't simply need voices of condemnation. They need voices who will come and speak hope and good news but this is what the gospel is. It is good news to share with those in Judea as well as Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus' primary, his primal evangelistic vision is global and ours must be too. We're gonna get into that more in the weeks ahead. But it's not only global. I want you to see that Jesus' evangelistic vision is non-coercive. Last week, I was at a birthday party and I was sitting next to a retired uh, ER doc. And I said, oh, when did you retire? He said, 63. I said, so what have you been doing since retirement? He said, well, I've been taking classes. I said, oh, what have you been taking classes in? He said, I've been taking uh, calculus. To which I just thought, you're lost and you need Jesus. Like, why, <laughs> like, why after, like, why? Like, you, you were an ER, like, go take, like, pottery or something, you know? Actually, said, I didn't begin there. He says, I, I began, I started taking philosophy classes. And he says, I got so interested in it that I enrolled in a master's of philosophy program. I'm like, of course you did. You're a doctor. Like, this, this second half stuff for a doctor. And we started talking. And then he says, but I dropped out of that. He says, I just realized philosophy is BS. Except for he didn't exactly say it like that. And then he asked me what I did. I said, I was a pastor. And he's like, oh, he said, he said, so he says, uh, he says, I'm an atheist. He says, do you want to convert me? And I said, yeah. <laughs> I did say yes. But I have to clarify for like, like what we mean by that. I think in people's imagination, because there is so much fear-mongering evangelism, and there is so much manipulation and coercion that goes on in Christian homes and in Christian churches and among religious people. People would be forgiven to think primarily that evangelism is about coercing people to believe things that they don't actually believe or want to believe. But you know, what's interesting to me, and this just struck me about this passage, Jesus for 40 days patiently 
provided for his disciples convincing proofs of his resurrection. People who maybe shouldn't have needed that much, and yet they needed that much. People who maybe shouldn't have required that much patience, but yet they required that much patience. And I think sometimes we can forget if you grow up in church and you take so much of what we believe is second nature, which is a great thing to do. Like, I, I believe. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection and the second coming. Like, I believe. And many of you, like, you're, you believe. But can you remember what it was like to not believe? And sometimes what our friends need is patience and time and actually, they need evidence and they need arguments. And what's interesting, throughout the book of Acts, one of the most frequent verbs to describe Paul's work of evangelism is that he reasoned with them in the synagogues and in the marketplace, and he sought to persuade them. Persuade them with sound reasoning. And Christianity is not irrational. It is not irrational to believe there is a God who created all things. I mean, after all, all things that begin to exist have a cause. The universe began to exist, ergo, the universe must have a cause. All of contingent reality must have some ground that is not contingent, that is ultimate and infinite. Surely it is not irrational to believe that there is an infinite, eternal God who called all things into being. It's not irrational to believe that God has revealed himself to people who, who he created that are thoughtful and intelligent and relational. Why wouldn't God disclose something to us? Why wouldn't we expect that? I mean, the human race is incurably religious and seeking for God. Surely it is rational to believe that God reveals himself. And maybe it's even rational to believe, and, and, and the, even though it's shocking and it takes our breath away, that this God has acted on behalf of broken, fallen sinners to rescue us through Jesus. And there, there is all kinds of rational argumentation that the church has produced over 2,000 years. There's also a lot of really shoddy, bad arguments that the church has produced, and so you've got to weed through it. But listen, in our efforts to evangelize, we want to honor people's minds. We want to respect that there are reasons why they have questions. They're not just all, I mean, yeah, sometimes people are just hard-hearted. They don't want anything to do with it. Sometimes people just need time and patience and 40 days and lots of evidence. That's what the disciples needed, and that's what Jesus gave them. He was not coercing them. He was seeking to persuade them with the truth. And this is evangelism at its best. It is a global vision that sees that the heart of God is expansive and wide and includes everyone, the whole world. And it is a non-coercive vision where we seek to persuade people with the intelligibility and the truth and, and the, the compelling evidence of the gospel. So Jesus' primal evangelistic vision, it is global, it is non-coercive, and thirdly and finally, it involves you. Now, please don't, at this moment, feel an overwhelming sense of guilt and pressure 
because you feel like, okay, this is what always happens when they talk about evangelism at church. I go home and I beat myself up because I'm not a good Christian because I don't do this. I don't know how to talk about this. I feel uncomfortable. I don't know how to talk to people about the weather, let alone the creator of the universe. Some of us are just introverts and it's difficult. And I said earlier, like, I'm a trained professional. I spend my, my leisure time reading, like, apologetic books. Like, I love this stuff. And yet, I, I can feel like I stumble over my words and that I'm forgetting, like, oh, well, that, you know, and then I feel like an idiot. And, like, you know, we can feel that way. Listen, it involves you, but it doesn't in any way, shape, or form at all depend on you. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. You will be filled with power from my spirit. And here is the good news. The spirit of God has been poured out upon the church to embolden, to strengthen the witness of dependent Christians who, like the disciples, will wait and will regularly pray and seek God for guidance and wisdom and strength. When we pray for our kids and our neighbors and our parents and our siblings who, who maybe are far from God, like we wait and we pray and we just, God, maybe I can be the one, maybe somebody else can be a voice in their life. Listen, almost everybody who comes to faith usually has seven or eight different touch points of Christians in their life. It doesn't all depend just on you. You know, that guy who I was talking to at the party, he said to me, he said, you know, he goes, I'm not a churchgoer, but at the end of the conversation, he says, if I were gonna go to your church, if I were gonna go to a church, I would go to your church. <laughs> and I think something happened there. Not everything Everything rarely happens in a conversation. The disciples needed 40 days. Paul persuaded people, arguing for weeks in the marketplace and in the synagogues. And, and sometimes you need to just give somebody a book. Sometimes it's a simple invitation, like I, you know, invite them to church. They can hear somebody else articulate the gospel for a bit. You know, invite people to Alpha when we have it. It's a little gathering that explains Christianity. Invite people to grief share or celebrate recovery or somewhere that is, uh, deals with a felt need in their life where they can hear the gospel in those spaces where they have needs. And so sometimes the role that you will play is a role of simply invitation. You know, the language of uh, those first disciples who were called, you know, uh, I think, who was it, Philip, who said, come and see. Just come and see. The woman at the well, she's there like, hey, you know, what are you talking about? She just said, come and see a man that told me everything, everything I ever did. You know, I don't know this, but I know that once I was blind, but now I see. I have a, a testimony of how God has changed my life. So God wants to involve you. But again, it requires a community of people that will wait and pray. And so let's be individuals and let's commit ourselves to be a community of people that regularly will wait on God and pray to God on behalf of those people who are far from God and ask that God would empower us with his spirit so that we can go out and be his witnesses. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for this truth that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have not just given us a new identity. You have not just given us a new family. You have given us a new and an exciting mission in this world to be witnesses of your healing, saving love. God, would you empower us afresh to be your witnesses? Would you move our heart toward the broken needs that exist all around us? God, would you wake us up to the reality that we ourselves are loved, that the love that you have for us would be so filling us to overflowing that we will go out and share it with others. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.